Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Warning, this podcast contains paranormal, conspiracy, and true crime cases. The nature of these cases may be gory, unsettling, or vulgar. Please be advised. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan, and this is episode 49. 49. 50. (laughs) One away from 50. (laughs) One away from 50. (laughs) (laughs) You guys even believe it? I cannot believe it, but wait, we have some huge news. Yes, we do. I mean, you guys probably saw it because it was plastered everywhere. Everywhere. That's just how we celebrate our girl and our- But our friend Noodle is engaged! engaged! Yay! So Peyton and Noodle are getting married and we're going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. (laughs) That was- Interesting. Okay, that was very, very in tune. I'm not even gonna lie. Um, you guys, Peyton did a phenomenal job. I mean, I, I have never been more impressed I by didn't an engagement. Think that he had it in him. I really didn't, Peyton. Sorry to let you down like that. Our grill master Peyton. But our dude. grill master, <laughs> Tennessee Vol Peyton. Literally. He, guys, go look at the pictures. You guys already know where to find them. It's plastered all over ours, all over hers, everywhere. Um it was amazing. The ring is drop dead gorgeous. Beautiful. Drop Beautiful. dead gorgeous. She had an amazing celebration with all of her friends in Memphis, and we surprised her there. Yes, and we did. Then we absolutely tore our river rivers, livers. Can I speak today? Livers <laughs> no, apart. We're still drunk. Yeah, actually. So because of that, we are not drinking. Yes, absolutely not drinking. No. Um I'm and having because this weekend is another holiday weekend. Yes. I mean last weekend was a holiday. Well, I mean it was yeah, a noodle it was holiday. A noodle holiday. And this weekend is Labor Day. Yes. Right? Labor Day and uh, Sorry Marley's uh, engagement party. It's sorry Marley's engagement party. So I just went to an engagement party <laughs> and I got another one. Except for this, instead of being six hours away, this one is? Seven and a half, eight. Yeah. Actually, eight and a half because I got to pick up my little brother on my way home. All right. Way out in BF, <laughs> West Virginia. So. So you're going to be on the road and you have been for a little bit. Yeah. And uh, it's September. So Yeah, happy September. What's that song? Wake me up when September ends. No, that song literally is going to be our vibe this whole entire month because we have so much shit to do. To do. Oh literally, we need September to be over and then October to come because yes. that is season two, baby. Season two! Season two! Uh, season we have two. some awesome shit planned, but honestly, guys... September better keep rolling because if I get off task once 
we're we're at. gonna have to push back <laughs> season two yeah season two is stop yeah it doesn't so, exist yeah it's not gonna be a thing if we don't get on it but um that's really it. Yeah, I have a game for us. Okay. Oh, okay, God. you probably saw it on TikTok. It's the intuition test. Oh, the clap? So, yeah, the clap. Okay. Okay, so we'll close our eyes. All right. Okay, are your eyes closed? Yep. Okay. Oh. That, was so close. that was so close. I gotta do it again. Let's do it again. Ready? Okay. Well, tell them what we're doing first. Okay. <laughs> um, so our eyes are closed, and then it's an intuition cla- test. You have to clap at the same time. All right. Ready? Okay. Oh, I was so close. All right. All right. We're not. Wait, I need one more time. One more time. Okay, ready? That one was, that one was it. That was the one. Okay. That was the one. I loved that game that one time we played and it was like. The category. Yeah. Things. God, that one was so fun. Yeah. I saw that. I was like, okay, we can do that. We can totally do quick. that one. Sorry about the claps. You guys are probably driving like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, God, I thought I got rear-ended right then. No, nope. <laughs> no, it's just us. Just no, being stupid. Just us. Just us. Um, I, I feel like there was one more thing I, I wanted to bring up. Um, can we bring up birthdays? Because we're so sorry if we've oh. forgotten birthdays. Because we just like kind of stopped doing it. But from our bottom of our hearts. Did we do the one, the bigger one that we were supposed to do a few weeks ago? Yeah. Okay. We did Yeah, Maddie's. we did. If it's like, you know, like one of our like real close friends. Right. And we're like, okay, happy birthday. But we, it got a lot. Yeah. It became a lot. So yeah. happy birthday to everyone that we might have missed in the month of August. <laughs> and the probably the month of July. July too. Yeah, basically all of July we just pre-recorded, so we had no idea when anybody's birthday right. was ever gonna happen. So today's Yep, our bad. So okay. you ready to get started? Yep, let's do it. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Okay, Morgan, so what do you have for me today? Okay. Not for them, just for me. I am doing something called the Edgewood Experiments. Okay. And it is a secret human research program run by our very own, the United States Army. Okay. My sources are wikipedia.org, newyorker.com, publichealth.va.gov, fortwiki.com, and npr.org. All right. So World War II was filled with horrific chemical gas exposure on human beings, and When I say that, I'm referring to the lethal gas exposure on human beings throughout the concentration camps led by the Nazis. Um, The United States and other countries intervened during this time period of absolutely horrible and inhumane treatment of those held prisoner by the Nazis. But when World War II ended, the United States military researchers obtained the gas formulas that were developed by the Nazis. Okay. These gas formulas were three nerve gases, Taban... Soman and Saron. Sorry, guys. Saron. <laughs> okay. I think that's how you pronounce it. So I'm going to briefly um, break down each of these nerve gases before I tell you why I am talking about them. So Taban or dimethylphosphoramidocyanidate, sorry, Marley, is an extremely <laughs> toxic chemical substance. Um, Taban is a clear, colorless, and tasteless liquid. And it is classified as a nerve agent because it fatally interferes with normal functioning of the nervous system. Oh, my God. Uh, Somin or pinacolomethylphosphonofluoridate is another toxic chemical substance. Somin is classified as a weapon of mass destruction by the United Nations. It is volatile, it is corrosive, and it is also a colorless liquid. Oh, my God. And it, too, interferes with the nervous system by inhibiting the enzyme cholinesterase. 
enzymes. By inhibiting an enzyme. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're just going to call it the enzyme. Um, and finally, saran is an extremely toxic synthetic organophosphorus compound. It too is a colorless and odorless liquid, and it has also been classified as a chemical weapon. It attacks the nervous system, causing paralysis and suffocation from respiratory paralysis. Exposure to saran is lethal, even at low concentrations and low doses. Death can occur within one to ten minutes after direct inhalation of a lethal dose. Oh my god! So just inhalation? Yeah. Oh wow. So we, um, we as in the United States, is now in possession of these three nerve gas formulas: Taban, Soman, and Serene. Great. And we decide to do what we do best. The United States Army returned back home and started conducting studies of the three gases at the U.S. Army Edgewood Chemical Biological Center, the ECBC for short. Um, The ECBC is the United States Notorious Research Center for Non-Medical Chemical and Biological Defense, and it is located at the Aberdeen Proving Proving Ground in Maryland. But the United States Army was not the only party in this classified research. They eventually recruited Nazi doctors and Nazi scientists to carry out this study with them. So we just literally intervened. We took it away. Took it away because it was inhumane and we decided, you know what, we need to research And then we're like, hey, actually, we're going to give you back all your lethal recipes. And you come work for us. So you can come help us. Yeah. Okay. Um, At the beginning, the study focused on the lethal lethality of the gases and treatment and prevention of those three nerve gases and as early as 1948 this study quickly changed and involved a secret human subject component like one no oh and they claim um in quotations that human subjects were involved to test protective clothing and pharmaceuticals and vaccines i roll emoji right there because that is absolute (laughs) bullshit yeah A year later, a classified report titled Psychochemical Warfare, a new concept of war, was produced by Luther Wilson Green. Luther Green was the technical director of the chemical and radiological laboratories at Edgewood. And with this report, he set out on a search for other psychoactive compounds that would create the same effects of the three nerve gases, but without having that lethal effect that those three gases have. So, okay, so you're telling me that it's, Sorry, just because I'm not like a sciencey person at all, and I'm sure there's plenty of our listeners that aren't either. So you're telling me that they, I mean, I know they probably have like hazmat suits and shit on when they're on, but like since it's an airborne lethal component, you know, like just inhalation will kill you. How do they even begin to research these? So at the beginning, no human subjects were involved. Okay. And well, that we know files i'll tell you later files were destroyed so we're not aware um but at the beginning no subjects were involved in what they did with those three nerve gases they like kind of broke them down and looked for treatment and prevention and then this luther guy luther green who you know was the director of this laboratory he was like okay where can we get more of these chemical compounds at produce the same effects that same paralysis temporarily without the lethal without killing you without killing so you. basically like in like in a not in a, anesthesia yeah anesthesia. basically yeah. yeah but yeah okay keep going sorry so luther green stated in this report um this is his words throughout recorded history this is why they did it throughout recorded history wars have been characterized by death human misery and the destruction of property 
each major conflict being more catastrophic than the one preceding it. I am convinced that it is possible, by means of the techniques of psychochemical warfare, to conquer an enemy without the wholesale killing of his people or the mass destruction of his property. So with this report, um, the U.S. Army decided to partner with a Harvard anesthesiologist named Henry Beecher at an interrogation camp in Germany referred to as Camp King. And this is when the, the Nazi physicists and the Nazi scientists and the Nazi doctors decided to join the party. Okay. This so, is when they got recruited when they were in Germany. Okay. So this trio partnership, Harvard doctor, U.S. Army, and the Nazi officials begin human subject experiments using psychoactive compounds um, in more precise words, mescaline and LSD. So I say LSD, and I, I don't want you guys to be um, confused with MK Ultra because while this was happening around the same era as MK Ultra, MK Ultra was carried out by the CIA on like legit common everyday citizens. Like right. it, this is like something totally different. This is done by the United States Army. So it's while it is similar in ways, it was done by the Army, and while no one proved that the CIA was involved in this study. Um, Others say otherwise, of course. Of course. So here's the logic behind this inhumane research. The United States Department of Defense decided that these forms of chemical warfare could be more humane than existing weapons. And this is quoted by the DOD, the Department of Defense. For example, certain types of psychochemicals would make it possible to paralyze temporarily entire population centers without damage to homes and other structures. So... What that means is that their idea and their logic is to temporarily paralyze entire cities, entire populations, put it in through their air, paralyze them to get to carry out what they needed to do in that city pertaining to that war. So instead of going to bomb a whole entire building because you don't know if, you know, the leader of a terroristic group is in that building, they paralyze everyone and they... See, like half of me is like, you know what? That is more that humane. That is dope, but you know, also like, like the effects of drugs. But like do we this. know after? And then, and then, how are you going to ensure that everybody in that doesn't have a like outside reaction or like right. existing uh, already existing medical issues? Exactly. You, you know don't. what I mean? You, you don't. You don't. I mean, but still, it's better than bombing. So, but I, I mean, in their eyes, it is definitely not inhumane, like releasing toxic gas to entire populations in cities. So that's like eight plus work right there. They're they like, also think bombing's humane. They're like, let's get on with it. Let's yeah. do it. Let's fucking do it right now, right here. And of course, this fire was lit under their asses because they had gotten word that the Soviets were inv- advancing in the same field. So similar to what we saw last week on my segment, they got word that the Soviets were using, you know... Um, Spirit, spirituality basically to create like these like super soldiers in right. a way and then the United States was like oh shit we gotta get on that well this right. is the same thing the Soviets were messing around with these psycho chemicals so got it now to the best part the or the worst part um, the experiment so while there were things going on in Germany no one has came forward or testified against um, the United States Army that they were a test subject there. I don't know if that's because it wasn't United States people, people personnel, or... So then it changes, like, jurisdiction almost? Right. Okay. Or they're not alive. Oh, probably that one, so... Um, So what we're talking about right now is at the Edgewood, Edgewood Arsenal. So for over three decades, approximately 1948 to 1975, the Edgewood Arsenal human experiments took place. 
This was done at the medical research laboratories that is now known as the USAMRICD. Ridiculous. Oh my gosh. Or the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense. Okay. What started as attempting to understand three Nazi-produced chemicals took a twisted turn that involved around 7,000 military personnel plus 1,000 civilians plus 254 different toxic chemical substances. You're literally lying to me. No. The chemicals that were the main focus were LSD, mustard gas, THC derivatives, benzodiazepines, and BZ. Wait, so you're telling me they're just getting these people high, but on like a toxic level? Yes. I wonder what like they signed. Thinking. I think, I think, oh, I'll, ta- I'll talk about that. Oh, okay, keep yeah. going then. So these were the experimental categories, and I'm going to kind of follow the categories with a percent of volunteer hours for each category. So yes, this was all volunteered. Oh my God. The largest experimental category is the incapacitation compounds, and that took up 29.9% of the experiment. The next largest is lethal compounds, that took up 14.5%. The third is riot control compounds, that took 14.2%. The fifth is protective equipment and clothing, which took up 13.2% of the experiment. Um, The next one is developmental evaluation and test procedures, which took 12.5%. The next one is the effects of drugs and environmental stress on human physiological mechanisms, which took up 6.4%. Um, the next one is human factor test, or which is the ability to follow instructions while on these like hallucinogenics. Um, that took up 2.1%. And the last one was that remain that took up the remaining 7.2% was visual studies, sleep deprivation, etc. Things along that line. So Russian sleep experiment. So the Russian sleep experiment. So. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Subjects were administered these compounds dermally, by aerosol, and ocularly, so by their eyes. A few amount of test subjects were exposed to these chemicals by a wind tunnel. All subjects that were involved were involved voluntarily. And that's because the United States Army made it seem like such a good deal. Bill Blazinski is one of the few test subjects who is still alive. Um, He said, quote, There would be a guaranteed three-day pass every weekend to go home unless you had a military test. There was no kitchen police duties. There was no guard duties that you had to do. And volunteering sounded like a really good duty. It was a vacation to us. So basically, if you volunteered to do these, these tests, you didn't have to do any of your duties on base, and then every weekend that you didn't have a military test, you got to go home to your family. I just, I like literally am like having such a hard like mental block with accepting the fact that we were doing this to our own military personnel. Right. Wow. Yeah. So like I said, in other words, if you were to volunteer, you would be guaranteed a three-day weekend to travel and visit family. And that that's enough. It's a huge deal to military personnel. Literally, like that's enough to do anything almost. Each subject was never told what chemicals were being administered to them. And while being promised they would be cared for by doctors and nurses giving the compounds, they were always left to dry by themselves and usually freaking out, leading to anxiety, stress, hallucinations, and depression. I mean, on top of that, like almost even triggering PTSD for those who have like actively served. Right. Most of the experiments involved tests of protective clothing and the ability to carry out military tasks during the exposure. 
According to CNN, Army Private Tim Josephs volunteered for a two-month assignment at Edgewood to be closer to home and gain his three-day weekends with his family. Tim Josephs was actually from Pittsburgh. He was 18 years old at the time, and he showed up to the military base, which he said, you know, it didn't look like a military base at all. It looked more of a hospital. He was told that he would be testing Army field jackets, clothing, weapons when he signed his NDA, and there was no mention of drugs or chemicals when he signed on. Oh my God. Once arrived, he had second thoughts, stating that it looked like a legit crazy person laboratory. An officer noted his hesitation and pulled him aside and said to him, You volunteered for this. You're going to do it. If you don't, you're going to jail. I mean, you're going to Vietnam either way, before or after. Your choice. Um, okay, this is voluntary. Like, you can come in whenever you want, but you can't fucking leave. Right. Are you kidding? (laughs) And the tests began almost immediately. He said sometimes it was an injection, but other times it was a pill. Sometimes he wore a gas mask. He never knew what drugs he was getting, and a lot of the chemicals were referred to as Agent 1 or Agent 2. Some weeks he only did one test, others he did many more. He would question the staff if this was safe or if he was in danger, and they would tell him, there is nothing here that could ever harm you. Yeah, except for every single thing that we're testing on you. The two months he signed on for went by, and days before his duty ended, he was hospitalized for tremors. He was then diagnosed with Parkinson's, having (gasps) no exposure prior or no signs prior. Oh my God. Even with a diagnosis in his volunteer work, the army sent him to air force bases in Thailand. I say that right. Thailand? Yeah. Thailand? Thailand. Okay. Well, either way, it's either the way that we pronounce it here in the South or how it's actually pronounced. And God knows we don't know how to say it. So, um, so he's now in the Vietnam war. He was told to never talk about his experiences at Edgewood and to forget about everything he ever did said or heard at the last two months at the Maryland base. Yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about it, but what am I going to do when people ask me why I have Parkinson's now? And why am I literally being deployed to Vietnam? Yeah, why are you making me leave now? After the war, he continued to pay $2,000 a month out of pocket for medication for his tremors and for his Parkinson's. The United States Army was of no help with this cost. Uh, he was never informed what chemicals he was subjected to, and he never got to live a healthy human life. Other people reported being placed into individual padded cells. A nurse would walk in, she would inject them, and then leave. And those subjects reported that the padded walls would start to flutter up like a flag does, up on a flagpole, and they would be left there, tripping out, thinking that they were dying. Another man, Frank Rochelle, remembers after being injected by something that the freckles on his arms and legs appeared to be moving. He hallucinated for 40 hours. While in his own private quarter, not under supervision, he took a razor blade from his shaving kit and started cutting his arms and legs, thinking that the bugs were crawling, thinking that bugs were crawling under his skin. He remembers another time that animals were coming out of the walls. He saw a huge rabbit that was that had solid white with red eyes, and he said, quote, We were assured that everything that went on inside the clinic, we were going to be under 100% observation. They were going to do nothing to harm us. We were also reassured that we would be taken care of afterwards if anything happened. Back to the Army Private Tim Josephs who went to um, Vietnam with Parkinson's. After his line of duty, he came back to America, got married, and told his wife that he never wanted to have kids because he wasn't sure the chemicals that he was exposed to would ever 
carry out through Oh, my them. God. Um, yeah, wow. He continued paying medical bills for 40 years. Damn. After 30 years of human experimentation, word finally got out. These boys finally started to speak up. Thank God. And files were immediately destroyed as well as evidence. Of course. In 1975, the Army's chief of medical research admitted that he didn't have the funding to monitor the test subjects' health health after they went through the experiments. You don't... You don't have the funding. You don't have the funding. You don't have the funding to take care of our literal... When everything is literally volunteer, you're not paying these boys. I mean, look, I the, one of the bigger issues in like the military world for like the U.S. military is the aftercare for our veterans. Like, Absolutely. And then the fact that they were... First off, everything else on top of it. Like, they should have years and years and years and years of free medical... like. Everything, insurance, like everything should yep. be taken care of for them. And then the fact that you literally asked them to be like bribed them basically. Lied. To be, you lied. lied to them. And then had them exposed to experimental drugs that we literally know are terrible for you in the first place. Right. You want to not even offer to help them or keep track of them at least? Yep. Wow. So when these files were destroyed, every single person who in what drug they were exposed to, those were destroyed as well. Okay, great so, research. Um, you really carried it through, dudes. Yeah. Also, in 1975, the research program was discontinued and all resident volunteers were removed from Edgewood. I hate calling them volunteers because that's not what No, they they're not volunteers. The United States Senate concluded questionable legality of the experiments and strongly condemned them. Thank uh, you, the Senate. Wow, well, I you. wonder what you did to condemn them. Um, they said in a report, this is from the United States Senate, in the Army's test, as with those of the CIA, they're referring to MKUltra there because it's the same time, individual rights were subordinated to national security considerations. Informed consent and follow-up examinations of subjects were neglected in efforts to maintain the secrecy of the test. Finally, I know, finally the command and control problems which were apparent in the CIA's programs are parallel by a lack of clear authorization and supervision in the Army's programs. Slap on the wrist. Yeah. Don't do it, it again, except for just don't tell them what we're doing right now. In the 1990s, Morrison and Forster Law Firm took on a class action lawsuit against the government for the Edgewood, Edgewood Volunteers, or often referred to as the Test Feds. They asked the court to determine the U.S. Army's actions were illegal and that the defendants have a duty to notify all victims and provide them with health care. Yep. And the plaintiff cited the following... The use of troops to test nerve gas, psychochemicals, and thousands of other toxic chemical or biological substances. A failure to secure informed consent and other widespread failures to follow the precepts of U.S. and international law regarding the use of human subjects, including the 1953 Wilson Dire Directive and the Nuremberg Code. A refusal to satisfy their legal and moral obligations to locate the victims of experiments or to provide health care or compensation to them after the fact. A deliberate destruction of evidence and files documenting their illegal actions, actions which were punctuated by fraud, deception, and a callous disregard for the value of human life. I love Morrison and Forster Law Firm. Yeah, me too. And it wasn't until 2013 that the Army would provide ongoing medical care to the veterans who participated in the United States chemical and biological testing programs. They were also responsible for seeking out former test participants and provide them any new information about the chemicals that were administered to them and how it could potentially affect their health. 
The majority of the test subjects have passed, but those that haven't have joined the class action lawsuit against the United States Army because it still is not over because the United States Army is only paying 40% of medical. For, really? You, that, that's the best you can do is 40%? Funds, remember? Oh my God. And that, you guys, is the true crime conspiracy of the Edgewood experiments. I loved it, but I hated it. Doesn't it just fucking heat you up? Guys, I am. Li- I literally paused for a second and I told Morgan, I was like, I'm boiling so bad right now that I'm like not okay. Yeah. And I had to take a minute to breathe it out. Yeah, I like didn't like this at all when I was researching it, but I was like, I have to tell everyone about this because I have never heard about this. And, and like, it's like the United States, like the CIA does dirty shit. And I yes. know that the army and everyone does too, but not right. like the CIA. No, CIA is the ones that everybody can just like kind of point their fingers at and they can get away with it because they're the fucking CIA. Right. And but we like, have no idea what went on at the German facility. Oh, I don't. I don't even want to do, imagine. I did read that the Nazi officials that were hired, um, everyone was kind of nervous that like they're going to take our data and they're going to go to the Soviets and you know right. give them everything that we just researched on when this got closed down, and that they were all placed into different neighborhoods and they were not in the United States, but like they were watched and they had to report like every two weeks. Oh my god! Or something. If they, since they were, I mean, basically like. Not, not fugitive, whatever. They're they, like mad scientists that had all of our information. Right. And can expose us at any moment. Right. Wow. Yeah. You know, make you sick. What year? What year was this again that you said? This was after the World War Two, Two into Vietnam and even into the Cold War. Okay. Oh, wait, no, the Cold War. It was all around the same time. Yeah. It was from like 1947 to 1975. So you're telling me. That this is basically where tear gra- gas was invented. Yeah. They, this is, they did riots. There was a whole entire thing about riot, a riot category. That riot just, control. Like, look, if you're saying like, okay, would you rather us like incapacitate in like a, le- like a lethal, but not, I'm sorry, not lethal, like a, I don't know what the word is, like in an easier way than bombing a city, then Yeah. Of course, I would right. rather you do that than bomb an entire city. But it's still so inhumane to to expose people outright without their consent of any way, shape, or form. And then not even to follow up. Your own people. Your own people, okay? Yeah. And, like, I mean, I couldn't even... I mean, literally, it's not like every time there's a riot or even just, like, a peaceful protest, and I could go on for hours and hours about the tear gas used in, in May of 2020. Right. Like, I could go on and on and on about that. But we don't follow up with, you know... Please don't throw a bunch of tear gas bombs into a crowd and then follow up. Hey, how are you feeling the next day? Like, wh- what? Right. I know. I I couldn't even get over it. No. And and I'm like really like more sensitive to it right now because I'm watching season 17 of Grey's Anatomy. Oh my God. And guys, I don't know if if anybody even likes Grey's Anatomy, but like I whenever I lost my job back in January, I watched from first season and I finally made it to season 17 and season 17 is all about 2020 yeah and it's emotional like Mm -hmm. it it's like so when I'm watching it and you're like seeing it and you I I was talking to Logan about it I was like 
we literally lived this Mm -hmm. and we're watching it on TV from the point of view of like inside a hospital. And it's like putting, they put all these names at the end of the people that passed from COVID. And then in the middle of all this, you're seeing the like the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement. And it is, I mean, it's like chilling to watch because it's like, it really does just seem like a a movie. Mm -hmm. And we lived it for an entire year. Yeah. Before Taylor starts, we want to quickly jump on here and talk about what is going on in Afghanistan, Cabal to be um, specific. Right. Um, We just want... Love and peace and prayers and space and good white light to be sent to everybody that's over there um, and the women specifically. Yeah. I I I honestly, I don't even like talking about it. Yeah. it's hard to talk I couldn't about. even imagine. I couldn't. And, and you know Taylor and I are huge women rights. Yeah. Fem- Feminists all the way out the ass. it just breaks my heart that these girls have had so much, not production, but what, what's the just word like, looking for? They're just restricted. Well. What do you press it for? They've had so much progress. Oh, yeah. In the last, you know, in 10 the last years. Few and years. now everything is being taken back to how it used to be like that, like the snap of their fingers. That's just so, it's like unimaginable. And like, that makes me so thankful to like be, we're so thankful for the privilege that we have Mm -hmm. and where we live. And like, we always like have to not, I don't want to say like remind ourselves because we're very aware of our privilege and where we live and everything. But the, the bigger our community grows within creeps and crimes, like it's more, it's more important for us to like share with you guys and you know this is what this whole show is about it's about awareness in the end like though it's kind of entertainment of us drinking and talk about our craziest conspiracies and hauntings and true crime cases it's still us saying to you like something has to change in the world right (sighs) oh man you want to get started Yes, prayer sent over to them. Let's yes. get started. So the case I have for you guys today, actually what we just said really leads into this very well because this is a giant case that literally changed the way police operate in situations like I'm about to walk you through. Um, laws have been changed. Acts have been put into place by multiple presidents and literally this is actually a moment in history where true crime case telling kind of took its form. And it's probably one of the reasons why we are here today. I'm excited. Yes. So this case, I have spent all day looking at all of the case files are out. And I'm going to talk to you more about that in the end. But I went through almost every single interview personally I listened to podcasts I read excerpts from books I watched episodes and I want you to know I did so much research but I do have to give a lot of credit to Crime Junkie Podcast because their research was impeccable with this and I use them as one of my major sources for this case because of the connections that they have within the true crime community they're able to do a lot more diving and digging than we are. So the case that I have for you today is the case of Adam Walsh. My sources are Crime Junkie Podcast, Wikipedia, NBC, TimeHistory.com, Miami Herald, CBS Local News, ABC News, Good Morning America, America's Most Wanted, The 
the book of tears i'm sorry tears of rage by john walsh sun centennial justiceforadam.com this is where the case files can be found the and the book bringing adam home so just a little quick offlier from the fact that this is such an amazing case for not it's it's a gruesome case and it's of a child but the change that was made because of the impact that this case had on law enforcement is insane but also it's kind of centralized where logan's from my husband's originally from florida and all of his family lives down there so this is kind of like every time i'm reading this i'm like thinking of i know exactly where all this is because i visit his family down there so much so to my fetzner family i love you and this one's for your hometown area even though you're gonna hate that i even said that all right so let's get into it So Adam Walsh was a six-year-old little boy living in Hollywood, Florida with his mother, Reve, and his father, John Walsh. Around 12.15 in the afternoon on July 27th, 1981, when six-year-old Adam and his mother, Reve, went to the Hollywood Mall to look for a set of lamps that were going on sale in the local Sears. Reve was on a mission to get these lamps. And like any six-year-old that's being forced to go on a shopping trip, Adam was dying to go to the toy section and play the video games, specifically the brand new Atari game that had just been released. So Reve's like, okay, whatever. She gives in, and before she could make it to the lamp aisle, she just takes Adam over to the video game kiosk where there was a long line of kids waiting to play this new game. So she's like... It's the, I mean, first off, before I even get into this, it's the 80s. Like, people literally, like, let them ki- their own kids walk down to the gas station and buy cigarettes and walk back. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? So, it's the 80s. I would have loved to live there. <laughs> I know, right? So, Reve's like, Adam, I'm going to run over to the lamp section. You wait in the line to, you know, play your game, and I'll come back, and if you're still waiting, we'll wait, and then you can play, and then we'll leave. And so, Adam's like deal mom so adam gets in the line exactly (laughs) exactly so before she leaves she's like listen either stay here this entire time and i'm gonna come back and get you or if you you know get tired of waiting or the game something happens you know where the lamp section is so just come over there to me he's like okay mom no problem i know exactly where that is so Reve gets over to the lamp section. She's searching all over. And of course, they're sold out for the one lamps that she wanted, you Story know. Story of my life. Exactly. So she's like, I'm just going to go back to Adam. It's only been about 10 to 15 minutes. I mean, because they're sold out. And it's not like the lamp aisle is like 32 aisles long. It's just like three, you know. Yeah. So she gets back to the game kiosk. And there's no longer a line of rowdy little boys waiting to play the game. And there's no sign of Adam. Reve doesn't panic, though. She just calmly walks back to the lamp aisle, assuming that they had just crossed paths and missed each other along the walk back to each other. But again, there is no sign of Adam. So she begins combing through the aisles, looking for her six-year-old son, and I'm sure her heart is racing. I don't know about you, but I've been lost when I was little in a mall before. And it's a panic. It is a straight-up panic. And I'm not even talking about when I was little. When I was like 12 and I looked up from the at Walmart and I'm like, where's my mom? It's panic. I'm like, where is she? No, where, really. Where is she at? Seriously. So I don't know. I don't, like, 
your story, the exact same thing happened to me. And it's like the most stress that my little body had like ever felt in my entire life. If you guys hear crying, it's Odie in the back. He's running around here with Nikki. (laughs) Um, But it's like a sheer panic moment. And I remember exactly where I was in the Hamilton Place Mall in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when the tears of joy and happiness that I shed and felt when I finally found my mom, that it was only after I went to the front desk and asked the lady that was working to intercom for my mom because I was lost. So that is exactly what Reve did when looking for Adam. When her search failed her, she just went up to the front. She's like, hey, can you call over the system and ask for Adam Walsh to meet his mom in the toy section? They're like, okay, no problem. So they get on the intercom, they say it, and Reve is walking into the toy section. As she gets closer and closer to the toy section, she sees someone she knows. And it's not just anyone. It's her mother-in-law, who just happened to be at the store at the same time. A wave of relief washes over her, and she just assumes that Adam had just found his grandmother and was with her. But as soon as this relief sets in, panic takes over when her mother-in-law tells her that she did not have Adam but she heard his name over the overhead call and was worried so she went to meet them in the toy section the two stand together waiting for Adam to just approach them at any minute one minute goes by then two and three Reve's stomach feels like a black hole with as the realization sets in that Adam is missing. As the moments tick by, all store clerks are searching aisle after aisle, and John, Adam's dad, is called and told to come to the store. By 1.55, the police are called to search for this six-year-old little boy in the Sears. When police arrive, they gather and interview all of the store's workers, but no one recognized or even recalled seeing Adam in there that day. One of these employees was the store's security guard, and it was her first week on the job, and she was only 17. She tells police that what had must have been just minutes after Reve left Adam to head over to the lamp aisle, a fight broke out between some of the older boys at the video game kiosk, and they were all kicked out of the store. However, she said that Adam was not among those who were kicked out of the West Side entrance. So John and Reve, as along with the rest of the police, literally run out to the West entrance to look for their son, assuming that he may have just accidentally gotten mixed up in the crowd and was confused as to where he was and wasn't allowed back into the store. But yet again, there is no sign of Adam. As days turn into nights and families and friends are searching relentlessly for Adam, John Walsh is all over every single newspaper, news channel, magazine, begging for his son's safe return, showing this very, very sweet picture of this little boy in his baseball team photos. And it is so stinking cute. Literally, every... So, Nikki is also from uh, South Florida. She's from Boca Raton. And I showed her the picture of it, and she was like, oh my god, I know that picture. Every year on the time that he was gone, like, it's all... That he was taken it was on the news isn't it so sweet his little toothless smile so sweet so 
like I said, John Walsh is doing amazing work, just getting that huge toothless smile out all over on everybody's front porches and TV screens. But police have a different idea. They think that the answer to the question that they're all asking, where is Adam, can be answered by someone in the family's close circle. And that someone is John's best friend, Jimmy. When lead detective Jack Hoffman was conducting the initial interviews, Reve admitted something that completely changes the idea of this picture-perfect family of three. Reve had been having an affair with Jimmy, a.k.a. her husband's best friend. Oh, shit. Jimmy had been living with the Walsh family uh, up until a week before Adam went missing. Living. Yeah, he was like basically like in between places and just needed a place to crash. And so he was living with them. And this can be like kind of confusing for a five-year-old, you know, because like I said before, John was like always traveling because he worked in the, well, I don't know if I've told you this yet, but John worked in the hotel industry. So he was constantly like traveling, working late nights. And so really... Jimmy and Reve were the main people at the home. So Adam kind of viewed Jimmy as like a father figure. And he kind of took over John's family in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. But obviously John didn't know about the sexual relations that were going on. But really Reve's like, listen, it was more than just like a sexual. It didn't even start off as a sexual like affair. It more was like he gave me the emotional the emotional side that I needed, like talking to me and was there all day and was able to like be a father in front of me and not at night and just in the mornings before and after work. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But Jimmy was able to give her and Adam that Jimmy moved out because the family was deciding that they're about to start, um, trying for another child. And John was kind of like, I need to take my family back. Like, it's almost kind it was of obvious. It was obvious that yeah. he was like taking up more of the husband in the house, really. But they were on great terms. They had no idea, like, he had no idea. And the affair had ended like two weeks before Jimmy moved out of the home. Like, they stopped. So Jimmy moves out and they're still best friends, but. Inevitably, because of this wild turn of events, they had to tell John, even though that they had gotten away with this affair for over a year. Yeah. Even with all of the hurt and anger that John felt, he insisted that Jimmy, his best friend for years, would never, ever hurt Adam. In fact, just the night before, Jimmy had taken Adam to the movies. So if he was going to abduct Adam at any point, he could have just done it then. Right. Or literally any other day of the week. But he didn't have to go play this big like role at a Sears and like take him. Yeah. Like no one I knew agree. that she was going to Sears. And even more so than that, Jimmy was literally called to the Sears as all this is happening. And he came and like was help looking for Adam. So when would he have time to like drop Adam off somewhere and come back? But even with all of this, Detective Hoffman isn't dropping it. August 11th, 1981 started off kind of like a dream, but like a nightmare in the same way. Because 
John and Reve were asked to come on Good Morning America, and there they put out a $100,000 reward for the safe return of their son, Adam. And they like talked about him on there and they were just like so excited. They were like, we're going, like this is gonna be it. That's a lot of money back then. But the moment they walk off the stage, police are waiting. Oh shit. And oh, shit. what they have to say is what no parent ever oh, wants no. to hear. The day before on August 10th, a decomposed head of a child was discovered in Vero Beach in a drainage canal along the Florida Turnpike by two detectives. This is 130 miles north of Hollywood, Florida, where Adam was last seen. A family friend who was in Florida at the time was able to go and identify the remains as Adam, along with dental records. The St. Lucie County coroner ruled that Adam's cause of death was asphyxiation, and the state of his remains suggested that Adam had been murdered around the same time that he went missing, due to the but due to the humidity, heat, and literally just the state of Florida being Florida, they could not get an exact date because decomp is just really different down there. Because it literally is like raining some days. It's so humid. It's hot as hell. And I mean, it's in July and August. So times that by a billion. Just three months after Adam disappeared and was murdered. In November of 1981. So we're still in the same year. A man named Edward James was arrested for the abduction of another little boy. After his arrest, his cellmate told police that James had been talking about Adam Walsh. So immediately, police are like, okay, let's dig into this dude. And what they find is that he is literally MIA for the last week of July and the first week of August. But quickly, this lead begins to fall apart, and the detectives still with this are continuing to zero in on just Edward James and the family friend Jimmy. They're like not giving up on it. And this goes on for years. It's like they were focusing on these two dead leads so hard that they were just trying to make puzzle pieces fit that just didn't didn't exist. Like really. It's like trying to finish a puzzle where you've lost half of it, you know? It wasn't until 1983 that the detectives finally had a new lead. And that was Otis Toole. We now know Toole as an American drifter and serial killer from Jacksonville, Florida, and as well as his relationship with infamous serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. In April of 1983, Otis Toole was arrested for arson after setting a house on fire. When in prison in October of that same year, he just randomly begins listing off murders that he had committed. After listing off five victims, he tells his cellmate and the literal entire police force that's listening that there's only one murder that he regretted. And it was the murder of a six-year-old little boy that he found in a Sears. Oh my gosh. Once in Jacksonville, police made this connection, all right? So like, like this is 
in Jacksonville and where this happened, where Adam went missing was in Hollywood. So the Jacksonville police are like, okay, well, we need to figure out a six-year-old boy that was taken from Sears. So they're, you know, reading through newspapers, you know, calling around, see what's going on. And boom, it's Adam Walsh. So they bring the Hollywood, Florida detectives up and it's Detective Hoffman still. And Tool sits down with these detectives and he tells them that just weeks before Adam's murder, he had been visiting in a, uh, his family in Jacksonville when he rented a car from a family member and just began driving around. He's a drifter, as I said before. He found himself in Hollywood, Florida. He got out of the car and was just window shopping for a little bit when he's at this wig store next to the Sears. As he's walking towards the Sears store, he sees a young boy standing on the west entrance outside and alone. Oh my goodness. Tool says that he immediately fell in love with the boy and he wanted to keep him and raise him as his own with his lover, other serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. He told the little boy that he had candy and toys in his car if the little boy wanted them. And he's like, okay, yeah, I want some candy and toys. So he grabs the little boy by his arm and the two walked away willingly. Once in the car, he told the boy that all of the toys were actually at his house because he had switched cars. So he's like, okay. And as they drove, Tool says that this boy is progressively getting worried and kept asking for his mom. A little more than that, he begins to cry and he's just like screaming basically, I want my mom. As his crying and pleading grows, Otis is getting more and more angry at this kid. So he turns and he punches him, knocking him unconscious. He pulls over to a deserted service road and uses a weapon from his trunk to chop the boy's head off after using a seatbelt to choke him. Trigger warning. Sorry. (laughs) He initially threw trigger warning the head into the back floorboard and kept driving on the florida turnpike before throwing it out into a body of water but he didn't know exactly where but he said there was a little walking bridge and it was a swampy area so morgan i'm now going to show you the area where adam's head was found it's literally a little walking bridge a really swampy area side of the road i mean he described it exactly he literally described it exactly where his remains were found wow but every time otis would tell the story the details would change and this goes on for years and years and if you guys know this case you know that this case wasn't even closed until 2008 holy shit and we're sitting right now in the story in 83 So what the hell happened in all of these years? I'm going to tell you. So because of these details changing year after year, it was so bad that Detective Hoffman just didn't like it. And he thought that he could have just been falsely admitting to this crime using details from the media. At first, Otis admitted to the murder. And he was like, I wanted, you know to raise him as my son and that full confession that I literally just read you. But then he says, actually my lover, Henry Lee Lucas did it. And, um, I was covering for him. I might've been saying Henry Lee Lewis, uh, 
I don't think. But it's Lucas, just in case everybody knows. Um, But Henry was in prison at the time. So there's no way that he could have done it. And then he said that he left the body at the decapitation site, which was on that deserted service road. So they go search there. And there's nothing. Well, then he's like, actually, I took it to my mother's house and I put the remains in a refrigerator and then threw the refrigerator away. And so they go to his mother's house. They don't find anything. Tool was all over the news and the press and press conference after press conference. Police ensured the family and the public that they had an arrest and it was coming soon. But what the majority of people don't know is that arrest never happened. Ever. For years, police went back and forth with Tool just trying to get enough evidence to charge him with this murder. But everything came back inconclusive or just didn't match at all. And they were like, we have no evidence. And we have to remember that DNA was just like a mere thought at the time. Until the 90s when DNA starts making a name for itself in the you know, crime world. And they were literally shit out of luck because the one place that they would have any DNA to be able to link tool to this murder is in his car. And they can't find this car anywhere. They had every like, like salesperson of cars or resells or parts. They had them all searched all over like this, like nationwide thing was sent out and they can't find this effing car. So they're like, we don't know what to do. And honestly, this is where a lot of criticism comes in for the head detective Hoffman, because he really like didn't want to pursue with Otis. Like he didn't want to try this because he was so hung up on Edward James and Jimmy at the time. And the only thing that the reason why he was like, you know, we can't go forward with this tool situation is because I can't get him to be pinned in Jacksonville at the time. And they're like, it doesn't matter if he was in Jacksonville. We need to know if he's in Hollywood. But he just like never looked into it. Obsessed with Jimmy. Right. But another lead Hoffman wouldn't really pursue is a name that we all know. And that's Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, my God. And, guys, this is a Reddit hole, if you want it. I mean, I literally spent probably an hour this morning on Reddit just reading and reading because people are so obsessed with this case. And, when like, that's why I'm saying, like, this case defined true crime in podcasting, on TV shows. This was it. And people have been obsessed with it for years so much so that conspiracy like conspiracy after conspiracy is created about Jeffrey Dahmer and his involvement in this case so please feel free to go hop on there I can't even begin to know where to start on that but maybe if I do Jeffrey Dahmer sometime I might dig into it yeah you'll have to but after only one person in-person interview with Jeffrey Dahmer so they they did go see Dahmer He was in Milwaukee at the time because the majority of his crimes were in the Midwest. So they go up there. They have one sit-down interview with him. And by them, I mean um, the Hollywood investigators. They ruled him out completely. And they were like, well, you know, the reason why we ruled him out is because he said he didn't do it. And he said he didn't even have a car at the time. Meanwhile, there's witnesses after witnesses saying that they saw a blue van in the Sears parking lot speeding away 
and they saw Jeffrey Dahmer in the Hollywood Sears. Like, there's like 50 people that came forward about this. Holy shit. Well, years later, it comes out that Jeffrey Dahmer actually did have a car, and it was his blue work van. In fact, it was so specific that the labeling was told to investigators at the Sears parking lot. But more so than all of that, there's witnesses that have come forward saying that they saw Jeffrey Dahmer standing in the area where Adam's head was found. What? And there, some people even say that there's photos of him there. So, like I said, if you want to hop on that Reddit hole, dig into it. Oh, I'll be on it Because it is crazy. So, again, just like this case keeps going, years and years go by. And I'm not sure if you guys have picked this up already, but my little true crime obsessed self was all over it the first time I heard this case. And that thing that I heard that immediately shocked me was the name of Adam's father. John Walsh. Do you know who that is? No. John Walsh is the host of America's Most Wanted. What? The TV show America's Most Wanted. It began airing in 1988. John Walsh dedicated his entire life to helping solve unsolved cases and catching the bad guys as a result of his son's unsolved murder. Him and Reve were able to save their marriage after all of these years of searching for their son and answers. They had two more children, children, and they helped change the world of true crime. On September 21st, 1996, which what was supposed to be the final episode of America's Most Wanted, in an act of faith, or really just heartbreak and all, John Walsh did what not many people could do. He covered the case of his own six-year-old murdered son, Adam Walsh. No. In this episode, he did what detectives wouldn't, and he absolutely zeroed in on Otis Toole. The tips began flooding in. There were thousands of unimaginable things coming out of the woodworks. It was insane. People that police never even took the time to interview or take tips from. And from those who came forward, they thought that this case had been solved years ago because police talked so much about this arrest that was about to happen. So people had no idea that this case was cold. A woman calls in and says that she was at the Sears that day and saw Adam playing the Atari game at the kiosk. But not only that, she also saw the one and only Otis Toole watching as the boys played, and she found it just disturbing. But more so than just the sight of him, it was the smell of Otis Toole. Everybody knew that Otis always smelled like shit. Like he had been stomping and dog shit and eating it. Oh, I can already picture this. Literally. So the fact that that was like a key thing, people were like, that was Otis Tool, no doubt. She says that the day that she realized after she had saw everything about Adam on the news, she was going to the police station, but then she backed out because they kept talking about this blue van. So back it up to the Jeffrey Dahmer. In the beginning of this case, there was a blue van that was like a red herring. 
And it was just something that people zeroed in on and it really like had nothing to do with the case. Well, some people say that some people don't believe that. And she was like, well, I never saw a blue van. So that guy must have just been random because he didn't look like Jeffrey Dahmer. Even many of the boys that were kicked out of the store that day called into the show and they said that Adam was in fact kicked out with the other guys, despite what the security guard said. And the last last call that came in was world altering. It was a call from a man telling John Walsh that this man that they're searching for, Otis Toole, had died five days before in the Florida State Prison at the age of 49 from cirrhosis. So because of this episode, America's Most Wanted was re-signed and still on to this day as we know it now. Not only did America's Most Wanted re-spark, but so did Adam's case. John and Revae brought in one of their longest and truest friends from their years of solving cold cases. And that person is Detective Sergeant Matthews. Matthews came in and reviewed this case with complete fresh eyes, sifting through all of the years of evidence, interviews, photos, and files. And guys, it's thousands and thousands of pages. You can find them right now on the justiceforadam.com page. I spent a good two hours going through every single one of those today. But one of the things that Matthew found was that this was the most sloppily handled case that he had ever seen in his life. Page after page, he uncovered lead after lead that was just ignored because police were too focused on their egos and getting the two men that they said it was from the beginning behind bars when those people actually had nothing to do with this case. Including a key piece of evidence. And this would corroborate Tool's story. And this is, remember that security guard that said that she never saw Adam and then those guys called in and they were Mm -hmm. like, no, he was out. Well, she came forward before even that episode aired, like literally months after he went missing. And she tells police that she lied. He was one of the boys that she kicked out of the store that day. But she was young and she was scared to get in trouble for separating him from his family. And she was like, I don't want to get fired and I can't be responsible for this little boy being stolen. But most damning of all, Matthews uncovered physical evidence that had never, ever been considered or released. Of all of this evidence that was collected, it was immediately put away and not even forensically tested or shown to the family to be like recalled, basically. And in that evidence was things that were found in Tool's mother's home. These included a pair of green shorts and a pair of yellow flip-flops that were the exact size and shape and brand that Adam was wearing that day. Oh my God. Even though we did not have Tool's physical car, there were notes of luminol testing that was conducted as well as photos that were taken on the site when they searched the house. But this whole time we've been told that we don't have the car, we don't have the car, we don't have the car. 
over and over again, Matthews requests these test results and these photos, but they're like, no, they're lost or they don't exist. But Matthew knew something. He knew that there was way more to this lead. So he said, fuck it. And he goes directly to the records department and he obtains these photos. So when he gets there, he's only to find that they were right. There were no physical photos because they had never been developed or looked at. They were just two rolls of film sitting on shelves packed with dust that no one ever looked at. What Matthew finds changed this entire case and it gets pretty graphic from the luminol and light testing done it showed two bloody footprints on the driver's side and in the back floorboard the outline of a human face so morgan i'm going to show this to you oh no i don't want to see (laughs) i'm going to show this to you it's not it's not gory or anything um, and I just, cause I just need you to look at it before I get into this. Okay. So you can find this picture. You can literally just Google the luminol testing, or you can go through the case files. I think it's photo 14. I tried to remember it for you guys because I had to go through 83 photos. Um, but when Matthews shows this to John and Reve, they knew it. They knew that it was their son's face. They could recognize it anywhere. Finally, in 2008, the case was officially closed. Without a shadow of a doubt, Otis Toole had committed this murder. And it is so sad because of human error, he was never able to be tried for this case. The Walsh family has dedicated their entire lives to returning children to their families and fought so hard to change laws for missing children as well as working directly with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They've worked hard to make it to where investigators that are investigating detectives that are investigating missing child or like murdered children have to have two head detectives. They can't just have one. So that way someone can play devil's advocate basically, because if someone would have literally just paid played devil's advocate in this or someone gave a damn, literally like this would have been completely different. I'm not saying that Adam would still be alive today, but he would have been able to be tried, you know, got justice code Adam is a program created to help lost children in department stores, basically saying like, code Adam over the overhead to like let people know that other store clerks that someone's missing. I literally learned that at Macy's. Really? I swear to God. Oh my God. I swear. Yeah. And basically it's to help locate children that are lost in department stores. And the U.S. Congress passed the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act on July 25th, 2006. The act was um, signed into law on July 27th by President George W. Bush. The Adam Walsh Reauthorization Act of 2016 was signed to continue the 2006 Act, and that was signed in by President Obama on October 7th, 2016. So, guys, I, I know I really, like, hyped up what this case did for true crime, but literally, without America's Most Wanted, there wouldn't be true crime podcast today. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, that's amazing. It was the first time that true crime involved the public to help you solve cases and there's a term for it and i mean 
I would love to be able to sit down and look at how many cases have been solved just because of a podcast or because of, you know, a Reddit thread, a Reddit thread, like something like that, where it's literally like taking public knowledge and applying it to help get a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. So that is a case of Adam Walsh. Wow. Did you like it? I did. It was, it's like a sad story, but like to know everything that it did and like the ripple effect that was created. Right. They like totally made lemonade out of like sour ass lemons, you know? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that is a case of Adam Walsh. Wow. I mean, you didn't need to show me the pictures that you did, but it's okay. (laughs) I didn't really like that. That's the only part I didn't like about the story. That was my favorite part. I know it was. I know it was. And guys, I don't know if we mentioned it in the beginning, but uh, if you follow us on Instagram, you can already see that July, uh, August was a record-breaking month for Creeps and Crimes. Wicka, wicka, what? Like, we (laughs) had the best month that we've ever had for downloads and streams, and thank you guys so much for that. It's probably because I literally called them all assholes for (laughs) not downloading. I'm like, you mother (laughs) So if you don't already, go ahead and give us a follow on Creeps and Crimes podcast on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Creeps underscore Crimes, TikTok, Creeps and Crimes, our Facebook page, just creeps and crimes podcast go give that a like and creepy counts if if you like what you heard here today go ahead and leave us a rate and a review five stars only no only shit <laughs> um you can also check out our website creeps and crimes podcast.com and on there you can submit us a creepy account or story suggestions yeah 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 either or all right guys thank you so much and if you guys have any questions you can dm us on any of our social media platforms or you can send us an email to creeps and crimes podcast at gmail.com we will see you next week for, for the big five oh ah! my god Bye-bye.